Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Can you believe that it has been one year since our first podcast went live on March 11th, 2014? It's hard to believe that the time has flown by so quickly. To commemorate our one-year anniversary, we're going to rebroadcast our very first episode so that we can reflect on how far or how little things have changed in the last year. Thanks to all of you for listening along with us all this time. So before we get to the new episode, I want to revisit a couple of topics that we previously discussed and give you a new good stuff recommendation for this week. So a few weeks ago, we talked about the use of steroids in treating community-acquired pneumonia, and we reviewed a trial that was published in The Lancet. Shortly after our episode, another trial was published in JAMA, and this study showed that steroids reduced treatment failure, which was defined as a composite of various measures of clinical deterioration, and it reduced treatment failure in 120 patients at three centers in Spain who had severe community-acquired pneumonia. That trial has been criticized because it took eight years to recruit a relatively small number of patients. Now, overall, despite the JAMA paper and the Lancet paper that we discussed, most clinicians that I've spoken with in the intervening period, including respirologists, internists, and infectious disease specialists, seem to be skeptical about these findings, and almost unanimously, they seem to agree that they would not currently use steroids to treat pneumonia. The main arguments that they've marshaled towards this conclusion seem to be, first, that the endpoints in these studies are relatively soft, i.e. time to clinical stability, and the main system-wide benefit, which was reduced length of stay, could be easily impacted by things other than just the patient's presenting illness. And so they weren't that convinced. They also said that it's difficult to blind steroids. You can see elevations in blood pressure and blood glucose, and so there was a lot of worry that this could result in some bias and some unblinding uh, in the trials. And so, again, people use that to doubt some of the findings that we've seen. The third criticism has been that the Swiss study that was published in The Lancet did not use azithromycin routinely in treating community-acquired pneumonia like we tend to do in North America. And it's pretty clearly known that azithromycin has a number of anti-inflammatory properties. And so the experts argue that perhaps it's difficult to generalize the steroid use in that population to steroid use in our own population. And then finally, these experts felt that it was important to argue that steroids are not harmless. They're associated with increased risks of hypertension, hyperglycemia, delirium, other infections, avascular necrosis. Uh, And they argue that even though these studies have only found that there was a transient hyperglycemia, there may be other harms from the steroids. And so on balance, most of the clinicians I've spoken with would not be comfortable using steroids to treat pneumonia as an adjunct. Personally, I still feel the Lancet study really was very compelling, but it seems like if I choose to treat treat community-acquired pneumonia patients with steroids, I will end up being in the minority of my colleagues. So I'm going to have to re-examine my own conclusions and do a little bit of navel-gazing before deciding what to do with this uh, current body of literature. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about is we recently spoke about the Mr. Clean trial, which was endovascular treatments in stroke. 
And I want to draw your attention to the March 11th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, in which there are two new trials that are published showing similarly impressive benefits for endovascular treatment in patients with stroke. So the EXTEND-IA study showed that in patients with ischemic stroke with a proximal cerebral arterial occlusion and salvageable tissue on CT perfusion imaging, the use of early thrombectomy instead of alteplase alone improved reperfusion, early neurologic recovery, and functional outcome. Similarly, the ESCAPE trial showed that among patients with acute ischemic stroke with a proximal vessel occlusion, a small infarct core, and moderate to good collateral circulation, the use of rapid endovascular treatment was associated with improved functional outcomes and reduced mortality. So much like the study that we reviewed, the Mr. Clean trial, these studies showed that by using imaging to select patients who are most likely to benefit from these treatments, and by using newer generation retrievable stents, endovascular intervention improves outcomes in stroke. Okay, so that's two topics, steroids and pneumonia and endovascular treatments for stroke that are just so hot right now that I wanted to include a little bit of a brief recap on how the literature has evolved since we last spoke about it. So finally, before we rebroadcast our previous episode, I want to give you a new good stuff recommendation for this week. So I encourage you to read about the life of Paul Kalanithi, a neurosurgeon from Stanford who was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer as a resident two years ago and who died on March 9th of this year. After being diagnosed, he wrote beautifully about what he described as dual citizenship as a doctor and a patient. In an article in the New York Times, he said, quote, What patients seek is not scientific knowledge doctors hide, but existential authenticity each must find on her own. Getting too deep into statistics is like trying to quench a thirst with salty water. The angst of facing mortality has no remedy in probability. And I have to say this speaks to some of my own tendencies, I think, when faced with patients who seem to be equivocating or uncertain. I often fall back on statistics and numbers, and sometimes I may bombard my patients with probabilities and statistics because I feel like I'm trying to help them. And it sounds like what he's saying is when he was sitting in the patient's seat, he didn't feel that way. He speaks of finding a hopeful balance in terminal illness. And he argues that a physician's job is to bring expectations into the realm of reality, but to preserve hope, which he says can be really tricky. He says that when you focus on the best case scenario, your expectations might become unfair or unrealistic. But if you focus on the worst case scenario, you might deprive yourself of the opportunity to make the most of what time you have. Despite his young age of just 37 years, Dr. Kalanithi lived a really remarkable life with many accomplishments, and his obituary provides a really uplifting and moving account of this. So we'll link to that on our page. The piece that he wrote that I find perhaps the most moving was called Before I Go. He ends that essay with a message to his baby daughter named Katie. And he writes, When you come to one of the many moments in life when you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, 
a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. So if you have some time, read the writings of Paul Kalanithi. I think you'll find that it provides a really beautiful window into being a patient, being a doctor, and coming to terms with terminal illness. So with that, we'll begin the rebroadcast of our very first ever episode, which frankly is a little bit mortifying to listen back to today. Thank you all for your listenership, and we'll be back soon with brand new episodes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rounds Table. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to our first online episode. We're a new weekly podcast about major studies in medicine. We're thrilled to be hosted online by Healthy Debate and sponsored by the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine and the University of Toronto Office of Continuing Professional Development. You can find us online at healthydebate.ca slash rounds table and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Search for The Rounds Table. Internists who are listening from the United States and Canada can receive credit for continuing medical education. Check out our website for more details. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Fahad Razak, who is a staff general internist and researcher at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and a Bell Fellow at the Harvard Center for Population and Development Studies. Hey, Fahad, how are you doing? Hey, Amal. Great to be with you. Great to have you. Fahad and I are joined by Travis Murdoch. Travis is a fellow in gastroenterology at the University of Calgary and a researcher in translational medicine. Hey, Travis, how is it going? Good. Great to be here. So, guys, how are you guys going to be celebrating our launch night on March 12th? Fahad, what will you be doing? Calling everyone I know and pleading for them to listen. I'll be buying some fireworks. <laughs> That's perfect. I will probably be curled up at home in the fetal position, praying for external validation. <laughs> All right, so every week we're going to bring to you three of the latest and greatest articles from the world of medical research. We've selected these studies to be of wide interest and to represent a range of research methodologies and topics. Every week, we will close the episode with a good stuff segment, where we offer a short and sweet recommendation about something from the world of medicine that has caught our attention. Finally, we'll be asking you our question of the week. Check out our website and respond online to share your comments with us. So today, our three subjects are, first, trends in American obesity. Are we winning or losing the battle? Second, early palliative care in cancer patients. Does it improve quality of life? And third, new treatments for hepatitis C. Are they worth the cost? So let's begin with topic one. Fahad, tell us about trends in American obesity. Great. Thanks, Amal. So the article I'm going to talk to you about today is called The Prevalence of Childhood and Adult Obesity in the United States, 2011-2012. It was published in JAMA in February 26th, and it was by Ogden and colleagues. And as all of you know, rates of overweight and obese have increased dramatically over the past three decades in all high-income countries. But what you may not know is that there appears to be a plateau in these trends that began around 2005 to 2010. 
Currently, about a third of all adults are overweight, and about 20% of all youths are overweight, and total overweight and obese is about 70%. And the best statistics for this in the United States come from the NHANES study, that stands for National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And this provides nationally representative data on obesity trends, and it's been the benchmark for obesity and for tracking obesity rates. So the article I'm going to talk to you about today is the latest round of NHANES data, and it looks at how obesity levels have changed over the last couple of years compared to the previous round. Currently, the findings are that about 17% of youths and 35% of adults are obese, and overall, there's been no change in the past decade. However, a finding that garnered a lot of news attention this past week was that there was about a 40% decline from 14% to 8% in obesity rates among kids aged 2 to 5 years of age. What was underreported was that there possibly was also an increase in obesity among women over age 60. So overall, this study provides the largest, most robust evidence that there is in fact a plateau in obesity rates, and perhaps, if you believe the subgroup analysis, a decline among the very young. It gives nationally representative and broadly generalizable data. So what do you guys think? Thanks for presenting this article, Fahad. I guess my first question is really about those subgroup analyses that have received so much attention. I'm wondering if you think that these are real findings or if you just think it's noise. That's a great question. I think if uh, people read the news this week, those subgroup findings got a lot of attention, especially the finding in children. And the authors themselves in their article are much more cautious. They point out that this was one isolated subgroup. They ran a lot of statistical tests. And so it's hard to know whether it was a real finding or just a fluctuation. That said, there is some emerging evidence from other smaller studies that, in fact, there has been a plateau and potentially a decline in children in this age group. So it's encouraging, and people are starting to theorize why that may be. Do you think it's uh, good, really good news that there's been uh, overall stability rather than an increase in obesity in most populations here? Well, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think obesity is recognized as one of the major public health burdens facing high-income countries. And so definitely a plateau in that there was that explosive growth in obesity rates in the last three decades. And a plateau is definitely encouraging, but it's now really about reversing that trend. And if this small decline in children is real, that's very encouraging. So Fahad, I've noticed in the media, the United States government, the CDC and Michelle Obama sort of tactfully saying you know, it's our victory. How much of this is thanks to the incredible health promotion efforts and public awareness campaign that has been spearheaded by Michelle Obama, everyone's favorite Obama? Yeah, that's right. Um, So, I mean, I think she deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Obviously, you can't link her program to this decline. Uh, However, her program, I think, is uh, something that's widely admired by people in public health. So that's the Let's Move program. And is it possible it contributed to this decline? It's possible. Uh, Other theories that people are putting out there is there's been an increase in breastfeeding among women, and we know that increased breastfeeding is linked to lower childhood obesity levels. Um, If you look at consumption surveys in the United States, kids are drinking less sugary beverages, definitely something linked to obesity. There's also been increasing healthy foods and exercise in childcare centers, partially because of Michelle Obama's Let's Move, but also because of general legislation. And then finally, there's this interesting program in the United States called the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program. And what they've basically done is they've reduced funding for high sugar juices, cheeses, and eggs, and they've then subsidized the cost of fruits and vegetables. And this is targeted specifically to low-income women and their children. And so if you take all of these uh, programs and you have some small additive effect or big effects, potentially that's explaining part of what we're seeing. 
Great, Fahad. So what do you think is the overall message then of this study? I think the major finding from this study is something that has uh, been supported by the le- most recent rounds of NAINs, which is that obesity levels have likely plateaued. Um, the reasons why that plateau has happened is unclear. And I think as physicians in our in our practice, we should continue to recommend what is kind of broadly accepted as good uh, public health recommendations for obesity, which is maintaining a healthy diet and regular exercise. And then at a broader level, I think there has to be a deeper understanding about how these effects could occur, what programs are successful, and why they're successful. Perfect. Thank Great you. study. Yeah, thank you so much. Why don't we move on then to our next topic for today? I want to talk about a study called Early Palliative Care for Patients with Advanced Cancer, a Cluster Randomized Controlled Trial. Camilla Zimmerman and her colleagues from just down the road in Toronto at Princess Margaret Hospital published this study online in The Lancet on February 19, 2014. So palliative care is typically associated with end-of-life care, and the vast majority of referrals to palliative care teams come in the last two months of life, if they come at all. So Zimmerman and her colleagues are looking to make a case for early involvement of palliative care based on the findings of a couple of early trials which suggested that early palliative care could improve quality of life for patients with lung cancer uh, or specific types of cancer. So they randomized 24 medical oncology clinics to either standard care or consultation and regular follow-up with the palliative care team. They included patients who had advanced cancer and a prognosis of 6 to 24 months. In total, they studied about 450 patients more than 75% of whom were receiving active chemotherapy. In the control group, less than 10% of patients were seen by palliative care, whereas in the intervention group, more than 60% of patients had at least four visits with palliative care team. They found a trend towards improvement in quality of life at three months and statistically significant improvements in both satisfaction with care and quality of life at four months. So what do you guys think? Very interesting study. Um, I mean, uh, I know their their primary endpoint wasn't significant, but I'm, I'm interested in, in the measures they use and how much you think it reflects, uh, you know, a success of palliative care. So they used a number of quality of life measurements, uh, which were based on validated survey instruments, and they used them to examine whether patients had improvement in symptoms improvement in overall well-being and spiritual well-being and satisfaction with care. And they also looked at problems in interacting with care providers. And it seemed like the patients in this study definitely had improvement in their quality of life, overall well-being and satisfaction with care. And I guess your question is whether or not we can attribute this to the palliative care. One of the Mm -hmm. key differences between the palliative group and the intervention group is that the palliative group received significantly more attention from physicians and the care team in general. So follow-up with nurses, access to 24-hour call support with physicians, a lot more clinic visits. So it's possible that it was just the intensity of uh, their interaction with care teams as opposed to the actual palliative uh, element to the care. And I think that, you know, that remains a bit of an unanswered question Having said that, right. you know, the emphasis from the palliative care team is certainly on symptom control and quality of life as opposed to interactions with other physicians. So, so Mal, sometimes uh, we find in clinic that patients who have a new diagnosis of cancer don't even want to have a discussion about palliative care. It's seen as a defeat in some ways. So what was the refusal rate uh, to the offer of palliative care in this study? Yeah, that's a great question. So they had about 990 eligible patients 
for the study, and about half of them agreed to participate in the study. Now, this was a problem that the palliative care team and the researchers anticipated might happen. One of their ways of getting around this was to design the trial in cluster randomization so that they randomized entire clinics to the uh, intervention with the hope of being able to recruit more patients by changing the culture in individual clinics. Do you think that this uh, that the cost of this sort of an approach will be sustainable? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think it's probably one of the biggest unanswered questions about this study, which is that you know this type of care provision is resource intensive. In the accompanying editorial in the Lancet, they indicate that in order to provide sufficient palliative care or this level of palliative care. The current health resource staffing in the United States is only about 10% of what would be needed to provide this kind of care for everyone who would be eligible. So it's probably not a scalable solution. And I think probably the next key step is to find out what elements of this could be scaled to provide those quality of life improvements uh, for patients who really need it. Having said that, and I'll make one point, This study did not include a cost analysis, and I wonder, having seen many patients who have terminal illnesses receiving high resource intensity treatments at the end of life, such as intensive care, you wonder if changes in end-of-life decision-making by interventions like these might actually save some downstream costs and pay for themselves. Right. So... Let me conclude by saying that I think there are three main takeaway points from this study. The first is that early palliative care seems like it can improve quality of life in patients with advanced cancer. The second is that if that's true, maybe we need to reconsider how and when we think about palliative care, and perhaps it should be integrated into the mainstream of oncology uh, practice. And then finally, Questions about resource utilization have to be answered, and whether or not such an intensive intervention is scalable remains a big question. So why don't we move on? Travis, talk to us about new hepatitis C treatments. Great. I'm really excited to be talking about this article entitled, The Clasivir Plus Sofosbuvir for Previously Treated or Untreated Chronic HCV Infection. Hepatitis C infection affects 170 million people worldwide. It's a leading indication for liver transplant, and actually in the U.S., deaths from hep C have exceeded those from HIV. Traditionally, we've used uh, PEG interferon-based therapies, which even with the newest medications uh, result in, in treatment cure of about 70%. Some of these new medications are likely to change that, this was a phase uh, 2B trial that, that focused on patients who'd been previously treated or untreated um, with, uh, with chronic hepatitis C infection. They actually demonstrate a 98% treatment success rate after using this medication combination. What's equally interesting is that response rates were quite high amongst uh, individuals in all hepatitis C genotypes, which has not been the case in the past for uh, some of the other therapeutics. Furthermore, there were good treatment success rates amongst patients who previously had uh, no response uh, or, or failure of uh, other regimens that included interferon. So, you know, this, uh, this, this was a very important study because it, 
it really demonstrated uh, a new novel set of medications, ability to achieve almost 100% success rate and cure of uh, hepatitis C, and especially amongst those people uh, in whom uh, treatment had previously failed. So, Travis, the 98% uh, response rate is absolutely amazing. How much of an improvement is this on the best existing treatment to date? Well, I mean, the last, uh, the last set of medications, the protease inhibitors, which were used in the context, you have to understand, of interferon, uh, pegylate interferon and ribavirin-based uh, therapies, um, had success rates of about 70% um, in the best-case scenario. And, and that's not without uh, significant uh, side effects as well. And one of the key things here is that the side effect profile was a lot better, you know, in this case compared to pegylated interferon, which uh, if you've ever had patients on it, really makes people miserable. Yeah, I was going to ask, Travis, how much easier is it to take these new drugs? And are there any special considerations in terms of who may or may not be eligible for these new drugs? Great question. I mean, these, these medications... Uh, are once a day, so they're a lot easier to take than than uh, injectable medications like like PEG uh, interferon. The course of therapy is shorter; it's only twelve weeks versus twenty four or forty four weeks for uh, for previous regimens. And furthermore, um, the you know it seems to be somewhat uh, independent of genotype, or you know there's been some genetic studies in the past on which. Um, which, you know, host factors which result in higher or lower rates of response. So it seems to be somewhat agnostic to those, um, those sorts of clinical factors in terms of response rates. So, Travis, did this medication, uh, or is this medication exploiting a totally new mechanism of attacking hepatitis C? Why is it so much better than what was previously available? Right, great question. I mean, both of these medications uh, exploit somewhat new mechanisms, this uh, declatasivir, uh, which I have, they, they keep making these medications tougher to say. <laughs> I'll bet you the brand name will be easy to say. Uh, yeah, totally, right? <laughs> well, um, you know, the, so that, that medication, this is, it's actually new in class. It, it's a replication complex inhibitor. Um, and the other one's a polymerase, in, uh, a HCV polymerase inhibitor. So they are, you know, somewhat new mechanisms, especially compared to things like, um, like pegylated interferon, which essentially exploit your own immune system. Travis, do you think these drugs are going to have implications for treating viruses other than hepatitis C? Like, could this have HIV therapy implications? Uh, great, great thought. Um, in this case, you know, these are, these are quite specific medications, which also explains their side effect profile. I'm not aware of any data using them in HIV, but, you know, uh, sort of a corollary to that question is, what the um, success rates will be in, in patients who are co-infected and uh, with HIV and hepatitis C, which is you know a pretty, quite a large uh, population, and and uh, I think the jury's out on that. So, so Travis, what are the cost implications? This is this seems like a miraculous drug. Is it affordable? Do they know yet? Well, you know um, that is best answered by a recent trip I had down to San Diego, where I was giving a lecture. Uh, I spoke to a hepatologist there because it came to market in the States before it, uh, it did in Canada. And he said, over the last week, I have prescribed $8 million worth of these medications. So they are tremendously expensive. Um, a course of treatment of, of 
for this, uh, you know, for for in particular for sofosbuvir is thought to be about uh, 80k plus. So in in some situations it may be more expensive than that, to the point where they're talking about bringing uh, the medications to pharmacies in armored cars. Oh wow, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if uh, the costs in countries outside of the United States will be lower as they traditionally are with medications. Right. I think, and, and if, you, um, if you look at the popular press, that's been a big concern of these medications is the cost for uh, developing countries. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the, the company really needs to, to pick up and, and uh, take ownership of that. So, Travis, I think your article then has raised our question of the week. So our question of the week this week, you can go online and please register your answer at healthydebate.ca slash rounds table. Travis, what's our question of the week? So our, our question of the week is, can society afford incredibly expensive drugs for common conditions? There you have it, folks. Travis, why don't you uh, wrap up your article? Tell us what are the key takeaway points. Great. So this article is, uh, is, is really a novel, demonstrates a novel treatment regimen for hepatitis C. Um, it's, it's a treatment that uh, is likely to revolutionize um, a therapy in this area, uh, given a, a higher success rate and better side effect profile. However, it's going to be a very expensive medication protocol, and uh, the jury's out as to whether we can afford it. Hopefully you'll answer that uh, this week. Yeah, perfect. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, Travis. All right, let's move on now to our Good Stuff segment. Fahad, why don't you kick us off and tell us what captured your attention from the world of medicine this week? Thanks, Amal. So uh, an article that I found really fascinating was uh, published a little while ago, actually, but it was called Slow Ideas by Atul Gawande in The New Yorker. And it's a pretty intriguing uh, examination of why some good ideas spread rapidly. And he uses the example of ether being used as the first uh, surgical anesthetic. From the point it was introduced uh, in one country, it spread worldwide in less than one year. Uh, And then on the other hand, some ideas don't catch on and don't spread, even if they're very effective. And he uses the example of antiseptic procedures to reduce sepsis in surgery. They took nearly a generation to catch on. So it's an intriguing examination of how ideas spread. Perfect. Thanks, Fahad. Travis, tell us what's good in your world. Great. I, uh, I want to talk about an article uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine um, in, uh, published November 21st, uh, 2013 by uh, David Ash. Uh, the, the article's entitled, Are We in a Medical Education Bubble Market? And it addresses the idea that, um, that the rising cost of medical education will not be sustainable uh, if we're paying doctors less in the future, and that um, and that we may be in a bubble such that uh, individuals uh, going into medical education uh, will be threatened by increasing pressure on on the medical system and on their fee structure in the future. Perfect. So my good stuff is called the Blood Harvest by Alex Madrigal in the Atlantic, <laughs> February twenty sixth, two thousand and fourteen. Did you know? that every drug certified by the United States FDA must be subjected to the LAL test, which is to detect the presence of even the tiniest amount of bacterial endotoxin. So what is the test? The test is to expose the product to the blood from horseshoe crabs, which miraculously contain a chemical that causes blood to clot when it's exposed to these toxins. 
So thousands of these crabs are harvested by hand from the east coast of the United States and taken to laboratories where up to 30% of their blood is drained. To add to the sci-fi wonder of this process, because of its copper content, the blood of horseshoe crabs is baby blue in color. And now, I kid you not, these crabs are given apple juice and crackers and then released back into the wild after taking their blood. (laughs) In theory, it's not supposed to hurt the crabs, even though recent studies suggest that the process might cause a reduction in fertility rates. Is this not the most amazing thing you've heard about? And an aversion to apple juice. (laughs) (laughs) Can you believe that we do this on all of our pharmaceutical products? I mean, this reminds me of how uh, vaccine development is in chicken eggs. Like, we have some crazy antiquated uh, legacies of how these things were developed. Yeah, but these horseshoe crabs are pretty funny looking, too. And they're big. It's incredible. So if you want to see a picture of blue blood and the horseshoe crab or any of the articles we talked about this week, check out our website, www.healthydebate.ca slash rounds table. Subscribe to us in iTunes. And let us know what you think. Leave a comment and answer our question of the week, which once again is, can society afford incredibly expensive drugs for common conditions? Thank you all for your thoughts today, Fahad and Travis. And I look forward to doing this again soon. Great to be with you guys. Talk to you soon. Take care.